welcome to the Imagineer Podcast, your unofficial guide to all things Disney. I'm your host, Matthew Krull, and you're listening to episode 80 of the Imagineer Podcast. In today's episode, I have the privilege of chatting with former Walt Disney Imagineer, Russell Brower. Russell worked on countless music that you can find around the Disney parks and resorts around the world. Most notably, he worked on some of the area music you can find at Epcot, at Disney's Hollywood Studios, then called Disney MGM Studios, Disney's Animal Kingdom, and the Tokyo Disney Resorts. We talk quite a bit about the music that he helped to develop, both original music he composed, as well as some needle drop music that he put together. And we share a lot of really fun stories. I should say he had a lot of really fun stories to share about his time spent at Disney and beyond. At the end of the episode, I'll come back and tell you a little bit more about how you can connect with the Imagineer podcast on all your favorite social media channels and how you can help to inspire and create the future of this show. So grab some headphones, pull up your favorite armchair, and enjoy this episode of the Imagineer podcast. Russell Brower is a three-time Emmy Award winner, composer, musical director, and conductor. For over a decade, Brower was the senior director of audio and lead composer at Blizzard Entertainment, developer and publisher of The World of Warcraft, Diablo 3, StarCraft 2, Overwatch, and Hearthstone franchises. Previously, Brower served as a principal media designer and music director at Walt Disney Imagineering, creators of Disney's theme parks worldwide. As an independent composer and sound artist, he has worked on such projects as Animaniacs, Batman the Animated Series, and many other series, specials, and films. He serves on the board of, boards of directors of the Society of Composers and Lyricists and the Game Audio Network Guild, and is a member of Natus and Naris and is a film scoring instructor for the UCLA Extension Program. Invincible, from his score for World of Warcraft, Wrath of the Lich King, made its first appearance in the classic FM Hall of Fame Top 300 in April 2014 at number 52. And with that, I would like to welcome Russell Brower to the Imagineer podcast. Russell, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm well. Great, great to be here. Thanks for having me, Matthew. Absolutely. Thanks so much for coming on to the show. I do have to give a, a little bit of a shout out to Billy Tuma as well for introducing you to me. I was really, uh, as, I, as we kind of talked about before we started recording, I find that as I 
am interviewing more people, I'm introduced to even more people uh, that I would love to have on the show. And as soon as Billy shared your name and your work with me, I knew that you were a huge part of my childhood going to the parks and I think even you know, watching TV. And I think it's the same for a lot of the listeners out there. So I knew I had to, to get you onto the show. So thanks for taking the time. Well, it's a pleasure. And, and, you know, you bring people on and this is our favorite subject. So how could we not just talk and beget more guests for you to, to look up and <laughs> I can't wait to, to listen to your podcast five or 10 years from now. I think it was going to be an amazing lineup of folks. Oh, I can't, I can't wait either. I'm, I'm hoping that's definitely the case. Um, so of course it is, it is my favorite subject to talk about Disney, which is why the show is all based on Disney content. I want to get, before we get into Imagineering, I definitely want to give the listeners a chance to learn a little bit more about your life growing up. And I'm always interested in that, the career decisions, even as a kid that led you or the interest that led you to end up in the career path that you're now following. So when you were growing up, what, when did you first get or become interested in specifically music composition? Was it something that was a lifelong dream or were you a fan of music and later on realized you wanted to pursue that type of career or where did that background stem from? I'm a lifelong fan of music and I was very lucky in that my father was a bit of an audio enthusiast, an audiophile. And before it was fashionable, he had our whole house wired for sound with speakers in every room, including waterproof speakers in the bathroom uh, and, uh, and out by the, you know, and, and where you could sit outside and everything. So one of those speakers was behind the head of my, my bed and even my crib in my earliest years. And so every night he programmed you know, like curated a series of a playlist, we'd call it now, of, of great music. Most of it was great film music, but there was also uh, some popular music and definitely some classical music. But I'd say the common thread was that it was all music that, in retrospect, I realized it's all music that tells stories. And that's what I love. And it ingrained on me, it imprinted on me. Now, that's not the career I, I thought I would get into. I was always kind of the class, quote-unquote, artist. And, and, uh, and, and given that music was probably not a very wise career move uh, from my parents' point of view, they were offering an awful lot of encouragement for me to pursue art rather than music. And uh, so music was always an out-of-control hobby until... Um, well, as it happened, uh, I did follow my art and, and along a path there, um, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I did end up getting hired at Wet Enterprises out of high school, and I was doing art and mechanical drawing and storyboard sketch art and things like that. But inside of a year, I had an epiphany that music uh, was really what I wanted to do. Uh, art was something I was encouraged into. It was something that seemed like a means to an end because I definitely wanted to work for Wet Enterprises. I wanted to work on the theme parks because what I was getting ahead of was 
I grew up in Southern California and I had a lifelong love of Disneyland. And that's what I wanted to do. And at some point I might've thought maybe with the art, I'd be an animator or something, but my heart really wasn't in it. I was just being kind of encouraged into it. So there was this point about a year into my time at WED, even though I was having the time of my life there, I through, uh, again, we can get into it if you want, just through a series of events, I got to create some sound effects and some music for a brand new, like just on the drawing boards thing for Epcot Center, while the rest of the company was out uh, at Epcot physically, all the sound department was there um, just working the bugs out of things and putting finishing touches on everything. Uh, the sound department in Glendale, California was empty. So when this new upcoming project for uh, later down the road at Epcot was on the drawing boards and needed some sound and music, uh, it seemed like maybe an opportunity. And my boss at the time knew I was interested in doing that kind of stuff. So he uh, asked the sound department if that would be okay. And they said, yeah, under the circumstances, that would be all right. And they knew who I was because I had been around poking my nose uh, into their department many times, uh, getting to know the engineers and learning the finer points of audio production the best I could. <laughs> in in, in hallway meetings and things like that. And um, so they let me have a chance. And once I had that opportunity to create some music and sound uh, as my job, I, I never looked back. I was hooked. So that old saying, you know, do what you love, it really is true. And And I found that out luckily when I was 19 years old and not when I was 30 something or 40 something. And uh, so I made that switch and I've been working in mostly music these days, but definitely all aspects of sound and post-production for uh, it's about my 39th year, I believe I've been doing this kind of stuff. Amazing. And there's a lot of great stuff to unpack there. It's funny. You mentioned the old adage. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's fantastic. It's great. I mean, I love the old adage of do what you love. I'm, literally staring across the, my office and there I actually have a sign up that says, love what you do, do what you love. Um, and it's actually a, uh, it's in a Disney, Disney sort of frame. <laughs> so of course. Um, so I'm, I love that you were a, a fan of Disney growing up. And I find a lot of the, not all, but a lot of Imagineers had that affinity when they were younger and wanted to pursue that career path when you were visiting the parks as a kid were there certain uh attractions that you were drawn to or lands or music what was it about disneyland that got you hooked well it was all of them and the way i chose to take disneyland home with me as a child uh was through sound and I, I remember the day very clearly. It was February 6th, 1972. It was the first day I took a tape recorder into the park with me. And uh, uh, I just recorded everything that day. And I think we only went, even though we were local, I grew up in Glendale. Uh, we just, find, mainly financial reasons, we only went to Disneyland about once a year or so. So I had this then 
feed my my desire to immerse myself in these you know wonderful ideas and experiences and the dream of creating maybe being a part of creating it someday i had to do that all in my imagination and on my own and the the tape recordings became just this amazing way of bringing the park to, absolutely back to life for me again uh, when i got home so clearly my father's influence was still there uh, or, or, or that was the beginning of it, uh, finding its way into my my interests and the way I uh, uh, explored things. So, yes, I went as often as I could. I especially loved Pirates of the Caribbean and the Haunted Mansion, but I mean, who doesn't? Absolutely, <laughs> they classics. were just so amazingly immersive. Uh, it, just. I mean, it's the holodeck, but it was invented decades ago. <laughs> That's <laughs> you right. You could actually go there and, and see it and experience it. So um, going to the park was a really precious event and didn't happen nearly often enough. But uh, when it did, I, I tended to bring a little recorder. And over the years, those recorders got more sophisticated. And, uh, and I've been known still to, to do it, although now it's totally stealth and I get these incredible binaural recordings and I, I know, you know, the drill cause I, I do. It's, it's sounding so familiar. <laughs> and um, so, so yeah, I, I, I didn't realize it, but I was studying the attractions more through audio than I was through visuals. And I never went to art school or anything like that. So I, I was definitely, it, it's, I'm all self-taught everything I'm doing. I'm completely self-taught. So I, I'm just, um, uh, it's just through a lot of absorption, a lot of exposing myself to uh, what was great showmanship. The, the whole thing, like in the Pirates, so you're going through the Blue Bayou and being set up for something amazing. And there's little hints to the music, but mostly it's sound effects. And then you go down that first drop and at the bottom, as if timed perfectly, and it always was, the song hits you as soon as you hit the bottom of that first waterfall and you've literally been thrown into the realm of the, of the pirates of the Caribbean and that, that the music wells up around you. And I don't need to describe anymore because we've all been on that journey. We've all been just had our disbelief thrown aside and we get sucked in and, and we get taken to that other place. And, you know, none of us ever thought it was real or anything, but we wanted it to be real. This is something that would be so awesome if we could just go come here every day and be there. And through the recordings and stuff, I could kind of do that. And that, I think that sort of, uh, I, I don't know, that sense of what the environment is like around you maybe has had an effect on the kind of work I've gravitated to because I've done an awful lot of uh, either producing background music for the parks or creating background music or uh, somehow working on soundscape for, well, whatever I'm working on. Yeah. And earlier you talked about the idea of sound and music conveying a story. And if you've ever been on an attraction when it's been broken down, and this has happened to me a number of times where they might filter you or, or, or shuffle guests through the attraction, but turn off 
all the audio, all the sound for maybe the animatronics, the, the background sounds, the music, it almost totally removes the story elements. They're still visually there, but sound conveys a lot of the story. And that's why even listening back to recordings from the parks, whether it be a tape deck from, uh, or tape recorder from the 1970s or now and nowadays binaural recordings, you can still, especially if you've been there before, uh, imagine, re- recall visually what you're hearing. And even if you haven't done it before, in a lot of cases, you can still paint that picture in your head for what might be happening around you. And uh, I-, I love the, that passion was something that sort of manifested itself naturally into a career as he self-taught over time. I guess, at what point did, you know, at Walt Disney, well, actually, before we get to the that shift in Walt Disney Imagineering, how did you get a job at Walt Disney Imagineering <laughs> out of high school? I feel like that's a total, that there was a, there's a blank there. How did you make that jump? Well, it, it's, there's a couple of facets to it. Um, there's a certain element of right place at the right time, I suppose. I'm very fortunate to have been born and raised in Glendale. So imagine my surprise to find that uh, Wet Enterprises at the time was in, in my town. And and I remember as a very young, young child uh, talking my mother into driving around Glendale until we found it. Because, you know, this is back in the day when you know, there's so obviously no, no way to look things up. There's no Google, there's no Yelp or anything. Right. And WED at the time wanted to be low profile. Uh, it was a very well-kept secret. And I believe I cracked the phone book and looked it up and there it was. And it had the phone number, but I don't believe it had the address. And I was like, oh, curse you. And, and <laughs> so I mean, I'm single digit age and my mother and I are around the car and we did find it. We did find it because it just, she kind of, I think, had a sense of where it was in the industrial section of Glendale, right on almost to Burbank. And because it sits very near uh, the the main Walt Disney Studios plant. So we found it. And so I, I kind of, so it was like a, it was a physical thing. It's like, okay, I'm, how, how can I do this? And I, so in high school, I did a thing. I went into the, the guidance counselor's office for, you know, like career and stuff like that. And I walked into this, this uh, person's room and I said to her something I don't think she had ever heard in her entire career uh, at, at Glendale High School. She had heard, a student came in, namely me, and I said, I know where I want to work and I know what I want to do. <laughs> And I want to work there as soon as I get out of here. <laughs> and she, she just wasn't used to hearing such um, specificness. I can't even say the word specificness, I, that's, which is not a word. But anyway, I, I told her that. And she says, well, where is it? What, what are you talking about? And I said, what WED was. And, and, and she, she suddenly seemed to know what I was talking about. And she started laughing. And, and I, I, she goes, I know exactly what place you're talking about. And I, my eyes got real big. And she said, you know, it's interesting. My, I think it was a roommate or something. Her roommate, uh, she goes, she's assistant to some guy there. Uh, I think his name is Tony. Like Tony, what is it? Tony Baxter, maybe? I think it's Baxter. Anyway, 
she's like an assistant to this guy named Tony Baxter and he's, he's young and he's up and coming. He's kind of starting to make a name for himself there. And I'm sure she'd like, you know, connect you to maybe, maybe you could meet him or something. And I'm like, yeah, okay. I had no <laughs> idea who Tony Baxter was. So right. yeah, it turned out it was Tony Baxter and, uh, this is in the seventies and, and he was building big thunder at the time. None of, I don't believe any of them had opened yet, but it was really close. So this was a, this was a man who, who's like star was just starting to rise. You know, he was just starting to, to really see some amazing times uh, and amazing experiences. And uh, so this thing was set up and I went to, I remember my mom drove me she had to sit outside in the car because I didn't allow visitors. And I, I, <laughs> I walked into the front door of WED and I had this a big box under my arm full of uh, models I had made because I had built from scratch all these models of, of like, uh, oh, like the shrimp boats from the Blue Bayou and the Pirates of the Caribbean and uh, uh, Skull Rock and things like that, things that I just love from, from Disneyland. And I, and I wanted to show Tony all these things I had made because I figured, well, they should hire me. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> At Absolutely. You know, 16, 17 years old. So I I walked in and I remember the look on his face when he saw the box full of stuff. He, I something as an adult I look back and I think the the emotion in his mind at that time was like, what have I gotten myself into? Because I because I clearly was practically moving in with all this stuff. Marched up to his office with him and and showed him him, showed him my wares and he was so nice to me he uh he totally got who i was and even though i was wet behind the ears and i was getting way ahead of myself and 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 all of that he he, he knew where i was coming from and he treated me to the most amazing uh tour of wed at you know and for like a like i said i was probably 16 17 years old and never been anywhere and done anything and to, to actually get a personal tour and see all these amazing things as big thunder was about to be born. And, uh, in the, there was already an Epcot presentation area and there, and there was, there were models of things, including the living seas pavilion, which I latched onto when I saw that as I, that was my favorite thing. You know, he basically showed me, uh, early plans for future world, uh, the things that they were, these were models they were showing sponsors, potential sponsors and things like that. And, uh, so I, I was extremely privileged to see all these things and I, and I was just over the moon and I was absolutely in love with the living seas pavilion. I think it was just known as the seas, the seas pavilion back then. And, uh, I was all ready for him to hire me on the spot. And of course, reality set in and he let me down easy that uh he he really was hoping i would go get some you know art college under my belt and things like that first but uh, but he gave me the best um pep talk i had ever had up to that point in my life uh you know he understood me he he was just full of genuine uh, support and attaboy, go get them kind of energy and, and just made me feel great. Like made me feel like, well, it may be 10 or 20 years, but I'm going to work there someday. <laughs> and uh, 
so it was a, a wonderful first impression that I had about the place. And then after that, you know, I finished my time through high school. And as that time was winding down, uh, it, it's a real long story. I don't want to get into all of it because it's so specific to, to, to my situation. But I, I basically was persistent. And timing fell in, into play here because basically the summer of 81, that's the, the year I graduated high school. So that summer uh, was as that's, was the last, one of the last big pushes, or maybe the beginning of the last big long, uh, about year long push until the opening of Epcot. And so the comp the, the company was definitely in a mode of staff up, you know, if, 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 if you can do a, something and you're, and, and yeah, I don't know, it, it's, it, it grew awfully quickly. And, and I, I came to find later that the company definitely has a, a cycle. There's a core group of folks uh, numbering in the hundreds that are there uh, all the time. And then when a big project like Epcot or Disney Sea or something like that is being built, they'll balloon up to 3000 plus. And, uh, but then after the project is over, then it downsizes again. So I was seeing the beginning of a cycle there. And through a lot of persistence, I got in on a program that is normally reserved for children of employees. It's like a summer internship thing. Um, it paid minimum wage and you'd get into some department and uh, uh, help out basically as, as any, any young intern would. And I, I, uh, I got into that program and well, the, I, I just persisted. <laughs> and at the end of that, I, I, it was for the summer after about three months uh, uh, of working on all of Epcot pre-opening. Uh, I got to the point where I was able then to parlay that as, as they got to know me and saw me, my artwork and things like that. I was able to start doing some, sketching and uh, some drafting and various things and I managed to get attached to a project that years later became Disney Quest but at the time it was going to go into the uh uh into Communicore and it had various it was going to be an arcade of the future and it had various names over the years like Communicore Game Grid or the Tron Arcade because Tron happened also that in that same era of time and so for a while the arcade was going to be all tron themed and so i got attached to that and that kept me on then through i think beginning of i'd, I'd say about about when epcot opened somewhere in there and that's that's when we were at that time frame i was talking about earlier where after about a year of doing art and uh, pushing paper and doing just whatever I could to stay, stay employed there and stay in the mix. Uh, I had that opportunity to create some music and sound. And so I made that, that jump and I managed to stay employed until I think it was October or so of 83. And that's just when 
about a year after Epcot opened, they finally, uh, the massive layoffs happened. And that's when the company was actually struggling and Eisner came in and rescued things a few months later, but I was part of a, a layoff then. But that was, as layoffs go, it was a really good experience. They treated me really well. And I still, and I had further uh, contracts with them and employment later again, a few years later. All in all, had probably 20 plus year uh, relationship with that company. Amazing. I, as I was hearing you talk about Tony Baxter, it sounds a lot like his experience, which I think is probably why he took a liking to you and took you on that tour of wet enterprises. Because I know just reading up about Tony that he's, he wanted just like you, he grew up down the street from Disneyland, always wanted to be an Imagineer, looked at attractions like the Haunted Mansion, which was relatively new at the time. And Pirates of the Caribbean wasn't even open, but he got himself a job at Disneyland and wanted to become an Imagineer and ended up just by happenstance running into Claude Coates backstage at Disneyland and expressed to him how he wanted to be an Imagineer. And Claude gave him a little bit of a behind the scenes tour of Pirates of the Caribbean before it opened and <laughs> then ended up becoming a mentor for him for a little bit of time before he ultimately retired. But it's interesting that I almost feel like Tony saw a similar spark when you came to him and <laughs> wanted to, and felt almost like a, um, a paying it forward to, uh, to kind of do the same for you. And uh, I'm glad it worked out the way it did. When did you, or I guess, what were some of those, as you said, the, the, the project that you worked on was for Disney Quest, that, was that for music or was that for, uh, or what, what ultimately come Disney Quest? Was that for music or was that for arts? Uh, that's, that's the project that I got to uh, do the crossover on. Originally, uh, in working with them, and again, this was for uh, the Communicore area, and for a while, it even had a coming soon sign uh, down in the park in Florida. Uh, it, it was real for a while there. And, uh, and that's that frame of time where uh, that team was working on it. And, it, and I was just supporting it, uh, doing the drawings, doing the art, doing whatever was asked of me, basically. Even did a bit of model making and uh, a lot of mock-up support and things like that. But eventually it needed music and sound and everyone knew I wanted to do it. And I, and I didn't know if I ever really could because that wasn't my place there. But again, two things were happening differently then than probably would happen now. Uh, one, again, all the whole sound department was elsewhere and otherwise occupied. And two, I think the company was really i think it was a holdover from walt's time if you remember he always kept track of people's hobbies that's how he knew that blaine gibson who was an animator would would actually become this world-class sculptor and and or just how he knew whom to to kind of corral away from the the animation and bring into the theme parks that you know he knew who had the right knack for it and the company just had that um that vibe about it, that that was the um, the way of life there, that everyone kind of knew everyone's hobbies. So it wasn't necessarily 
that it was a surprise that I'd want to do the music. I just didn't know if it was going to be politically correct for me to do the music. But as it turned out, it was the right thing to do. The, the sound department was very nice to me. They, they did say that, you know, since I was unproven, that whatever I did should be only for mock-up purposes. It was only uh, in years later that I kind of, you know, earned my wings so I'd be able to create things that, you know, the guests would hear. But uh, that's, it was definitely a wonderful nurturing process uh, in place back then. And, and Tony was kind of just the, the initial um, uh, face to that. He, he just was so nice to me. Ironically, we never worked together. Uh, we're still friends and we talk, but we, we never actually worked on a project together. But I do remember when I got hired into that summer program, I ambled up to his office and sat down and surprised him because I, I got back in a lot, uh, or got hired a lot sooner than I think he thought I, I was going to. <laughs> yeah, definitely show him uh, <laughs> that you can make it possible with a lot of that inspiration. I guess there's, so there's a lot of, projects you've worked on and at Disney and even I'm not going to go down the whole list just because there is so much but essentially every area music loop at Tokyo Disney Sea, the Innoventions music loop and Plaza area music loop at Epcot, the Imagination music loop at Epcot. Um, Actually no. Oh no not those? Not, Not Imagination. Oh, I thought it was. Uh, I'm sorry if I read the, uh, the list long. Might have been Image Works. That was it. Image Works, which I oh, yeah, I yeah. said that because I attach it to the Imagination Pavilion. Oh, absolutely. Um, so, but you're right. The uh, a little bit more specific than that. But there's so many projects that you worked on. What were I guess? What was sort of that first major sound or music project that you developed for Wet Enterprises? Well, the very first stuff I did was again for the uh, uh, the Tron Arcade, as it as it were. And one of my favorite things uh, in there was a game that the uh, uh, Kirk brothers, uh, Tim Tim Kirk, uh, and and his brother were developing. And uh, you'll you'll there those are named the the Kirk brothers are names that you'll uh, come across quite a bit. Uh, especially on Tokyo Disney Sea and things like that. Uh, the, um, they were working on a game that was very much in the style of Indiana Jones. I think they were uh, wanting to <laughs> do an indie, indie ride long before it actually happened. But it, what this was, this was going to be a branching laser disc game, not unlike Dragon's Lair, if you ever knew of that video game, uh, which had the Don Bluth animation. I had heard of it. I don't think I ever played it, though. Okay, so it was a branching video disc game. So it, it was technically a game, and you could you could uh, make your way through the series of events t- to either win or lose. But um, the uh, uh, but the medium it was on was was laser disc, and in this case, instead of uh, hand drawn animation, the visuals were all three D shots of an elaborate model. Uh, so it's more like, you know, Thunderbirds style or something like that, where just this model's really beautiful. And, and uh, in a way, it would be like playing it would be like playing a 3D version of, of uh, a game like Myst or something like that on a computer today, where you, you know, like point where you want to go and then 
the screen would sort of dissolve into take you into the next room or might push through in a little bit of canned motion. But this is all really crude, but because it was shots of a model, it actually looked beautiful. And the soundtrack for that, I got the chance to create a, uh, not, I, I didn't want to copy Indiana Jones. I certainly didn't do a, an indie theme, but, but as far as the exploration and everything, going through all these tunnels and, oh, I just loved all the treasure and skeletons and coins and vines and booby traps and rocks and things like that and mummies. That was just the most wonderful thing. Which, what a gift to write music for. So that was one of the first things I did. And it really, um, Help me make my way there. Uh, that and the other soundtracks I did, uh, I got to know quite a few people. A lot of them just heard the music coming out of this office that normally didn't have sound coming out of it. And wanted to know what it was and got to know me. And some of these folks later became show producers I'd work with on, on other projects and things like that. So it was just a really great time to be around and to be there and to. Uh, be uh getting better at what i do and um so later then i'd say after that uh the living seas is really important to me because that's musically was a big break george wilkins uh, made that opportunity happen for me he wrote the main uh theme that it's 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 all based around and uh i fleshed it out into this hour and that was a huge moment for me and um then after that, I'd, I'd say that the uh, Future World Inventions Plaza loop, again, these are things that I got to write and, and not, not just produce, but actually compose and, and put my, my heart and soul and, and, and like, what does Epcot mean to me? You know, put that into the music. What, is, what do I feel like when I'm walking out of Epcot? Uh, I never had kids, but what would it feel like walking out of Epcot at the end of the day with, you know, a sleeping kid in my arms and just letting the memories of the day wash over me? What music should be playing then? And uh, those are the kind of questions I, I asked myself. And whatever I answered myself is what I put into that. And uh, I have fond memories both of working on Epcot and then being there as a guest and imagining what kind of music I would create and then, ult and then ultimately getting to uh, go back and wander through the model again at uh, Imagineering and then go home and just stay holed up in my room until this music came out. <laughs> so those are, of all the things I've done, I'd say those, those are the high points along the way. Personally, I can, anyway. Yeah, I can still hear a lot of that early music in my head. The, the C's has changed their score a bit. They're now, of course, based on Finding Nemo, so the this, the score has is a little bit different, and the area music is a little different. But I can still, from childhood, remember going to Epcot and hearing that music. It was my dad's favorite pavilion at Epcot. He loved the C's, and I think part of that was the score. The other part of it was the attraction itself. But he always loved that that uh, pavilion. Do you remember the first time, because I know you said you, you kind of go to Epcot and imagine what the sound might be like or what that feeling might be. Do you remember the first time you would went back to Epcot and heard your music in the parks? 
Yes, uh, The Living Seas, 1986. Uh, I had just gotten married. And in fact, The Living Seas, uh, my paycheck paid for the honeymoon. Uh, That's to, great. To Florida. <laughs> and we were standing in the observation deck in, in, in the living seas and, and the high point, there was a, there was a, another young couple and they were right up against the glass and they were there on what looked like a, it almost looked like another honeymoon going on. They just, and they were pressed up against the glass there watching the tank. And I overheard the woman say to the, the gentleman, she, she said, I wonder if the dolphins can hear this music because it looks like they're dancing to it. And they had no idea who was standing behind them <laughs> trying to, trying to see, see the tank myself. And I heard them say that and just, it just made my heart just explode in the best possible way. I, I, it just, cause I knew that, no, they don't, they don't hear it, but <laughs> of course the, the animals don't hear it. It would drive right. them crazy and they would die. But they, <laughs> but the illusion of that, 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 I didn't even think of that in all honesty. I mean, I just wrote, and, and, and arranged what I was feeling. And uh, uh, again, the living seas was the pavilion that caught my eye the most when so many years before, when I had looked through the model area with Tony Baxter, I, I had no idea I'd get to work on it at all, much less write the music. So it was such an amazing moment. So I, I, I did not out myself to those people. I just, I was a good Imagineer and remained incognito. And I, I just, just decided that that was the mark of a successful piece of music. If, if, if it drew that kind of comment. So very happy about that. <laughs> yeah, that definitely speaks to you capturing the feeling perfectly. If they're thinking that the dolphins can hear it, they're dancing to it. I think that's a strong testament to the, to the power of the music that you wrote um, and, and how, how well it matches. And especially nice to, as a, as, cause that's a good first impression to have. Cause my next impression when I did the uh, uh, future world interventions music was I, I, I came to find that a lot of people uh, felt it was the very best bathroom music that exists at Epcot Center because that was the best place to hear it. And yeah. that's where they tended to hear it in full. And it became a bit of a dubious honor, but I, you know, I'll, I'll take it. I'll wear it with pride, but I'm glad I got the dancing dolphins as my first uh, bit of praise before I got the bathroom, <laughs> the bathroom it's, music. Great. It's not a criticism at all. It's a, <laughs> or a backhanded compliment. It is a compliment at Disney because Disney pays attention to those details. And there is a, I, I might actually have to do a podcast episode on the best bathrooms at Disney and music will be a part of it. I'm not going to lie because <laughs> I think the same thing when I go into a bathroom at Disney, it's actually a chance to, in a quieter environment, hear the area music continuing from outside so I can, I can see that being a thing. It's, I'm going to have to add that to my list, actually. Well, it may be related to that. Maybe there's, uh, in relation to that, there's the best places at Disney to, you know, take a load off and just chill, you know, True. To, you know and, and to relax. And I, I remember uh, there was a, uh, some colleague of mine back then, I, I, I remember I had the biggest argument with, because he, he swore up and down that the, the loop out, the music loop, 
out in interventions and everything did not need to be an hour. He said, it's a thoroughfare. No one stops by. It's, it, it's just a waste of time and money to, to do an hour loop. And I, I was like, no, 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 this is absolutely not. This people sit. I, 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 in fact, I looked at him and I, I, it would have been a career ender to look at him and say, have you been to the park? But, but so I didn't say <laughs> that, but yeah, but that's what I felt. I felt like, huh, haven't you ever been to Disney world? Have you been to Epcot center? And you've been like in that moment where you're, you really are very happy, but you're so tired that you just need to sit down. And that's the way you'll preserve your happiness is to sit down maybe while the kids are running around and just take a chill for a few minutes. So where are the best places to do that? Are those places annoying? And if you, if there's music, does that music take you on a journey? And that's the kind of thing I wanted to do. And so I remember I, I, I lost that argument for a while uh, when, when, when he finished with his way, the, the loop out there was only uh, 20 minutes, but uh, eventually there were times when it was opened up to the, the full hour and the full hour for some strange reason, always played at uh, inside mouse gear and some other <laughs> odd location. So, yeah. Yeah. I can say that's one of the loops where I can tell it should be longer for that reason because I have definitely spent quite a bit of time in that part of Epcot and just meandering at trigger points, enjoying the atmosphere and the view or taking a load off. And now especially that, although they moved or are in the process of moving that, um, the fountain location that uh, was Starbucks uh, for the last few years, um, that was a, I would hear that loop, quite a bit being inside the Starbucks waiting in line <laughs> and uh, <laughs> then coming out and still hearing the loop. But that's, I think one of the loops that I have listened to probably the most um, in the parks and, and outside the parks. Although second to that, I have to say the, the, like I said, there's probably a ton we could talk about specifically, but the other loops I heard quite a bit was my first role as a cast member was working at uh, Disney's Animal Kingdom, and I know you had quite a big impact in that park as well. What I find to be interesting is that there's some area music, and this is true for all of Disney, there's some area music that is totally original, whether it be something like The Seas or Inventions, and there's other area music where I'll hear um, either either hear a familiar theme that I've heard in a movie before, or I'll notice that when I go to look up where the music came from, a lot of it is an arrangement of music that's out there. I know that in Africa, for instance, at Animal Kingdom, a lot of that music is uh, like actually comes from uh, different parts of Africa. In uh, Asia, I think is a, a similar case um, for at least some of the songs. How do you approach and you know, did you, have you worked on those sorts of projects, I guess, where that's not a hundred percent original, but you're either comp uh, putting together, compiling music that already exists, um, or sort of doing an extension of, or a, um, you know, an alternate melody to existing music that's out there. I think most of the tracks that, uh, play in the parks actually at least at that time i can't speak for now but uh, uh during my era most of the tracks were uh of that latter uh variety 
what we might call needle drop, where it's uh, just stuff taken from pre-existing sources. And then my job would be to cure, curate this. And, 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 and my first, the first time I did that job was on uh, the, the opening day version of, well, as it was known then, Disney MGM Studios. So all the area music in Disney MGM on opening day, uh, I had cur- curated. Now the assignment was given to me by other Imagineers. Uh, it's like they picked the areas. It's like, here's Mickey's face. This is Hollywood Boulevard. This is Echo Lake, et cetera, et cetera. And they had a basic premise for what they wanted uh, musically in each of those areas. Uh, but they didn't know specifically what they wanted. And like in the case of Echo Lake, they wanted adventure music from the movies. And I took it a step further and said, okay, I want for the person again, who chooses to sit on the bench and stay the course for, and not just walk through in a thoroughfare. I want the journey I want them taken on is I want them to go on a mini, uh, not a lesson, but just a historical amble through, in this case, the adventure, the great, greatest adventure music from the movies. And I'll tell you the, uh, once again, my father's plying me with soundtracks in my childhood paid off because I just had all, all these themes in my head of from great Hollywood films. And I enlisted the help of, uh, a gentleman who worked with um, the Society for Preservation of Film Music uh, at the time in Hollywood, and he helped help me kind of fill in some of my knowledge gaps and really make it an historically compelling walkthrough, if you will. So if you do listen to the an entire loop uh, from that era, it's not just a hit parade. It's actually um, might even play a few things that you wouldn't necessarily no, but but do stand the the test of being very listenable and very compelling, but maybe just not as famous as Jaws or something like that. Even though I put some Jaws in there, but uh, 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 although I I think I put the one barrel chase rather than the main theme because I wanted something that would one be audible over the sounds of just the thrum of noise in the parks, and two. I wanted to pay homage to it because it's an important film score, but obviously the competition up the road was, you know, had the Jaws, uh, <laughs> of course, uh, yeah, uh, IP. So therefore, I couldn't get too, you know, overt with it. But uh, um, yeah, doing those that needle drop stuff, I think for the film studio, it was really apropos for that. Um, but I remember having disappointments in other locations, like when uh, the Wonders of Life Pavilion finally uh, was being realized. Uh, it was an, it was at one time a day one attraction, but it ended up being one of the very last to open. And uh, when it was finally underway, I, I remember I was all excited for what could be like some really cool original background music in that space. In fact, I, I just was under the notion that all future world background music should be original because the themes, the, the pavilions, for the most part, at least on opening day, had amazing songs in them and melodic identities. And so 
you know, I want it to just continue that with, um, with wonders of life, but, but I was overruled and that was all ended up being new age music. So, um, you know, you win some, you lose some, <laughs> but, the, but the, uh, music and throughout, uh, Tokyo, Disney sea, uh, there's a, I mean, yes, there's needle drop, but there's often awful lot of music created originally for it. And, um, also, uh, some of my predecessors or other colleagues from other eras there, like, uh, I'm thinking of uh, Ken Lisi for one. He he created and or uh, commissioned all these wonderful uh, original soundtracks for Disneyland Paris, which um, uh, have found their way to the other parks now. So, and those and those were maybe like, say, in the case of Frontierland, existing songs from Western movies and things like that, but they were new arrangements written or created and recorded, especially for the park. And I love that because then, then that means unlike, unfortunately wonders of life at the time, you're not going to, you know, be watching television and watching a commercial for something not terribly uh, family dinner table friendly and hear some music from a, you know, an Epcot pavilion in the background <laughs> because right. library, library music. So I just felt there was a danger in that. So I, I preferred doing the original stuff and tried to help influence that to happen wherever I could. Yeah. I, you know, whether it's interesting, whether it is needle drop, which I'm definitely going to be using that expression from now on or, original scores it's almost uh seamless the way that you put it together in the parks it just makes sense um echo lake is a great example you're walking around or sitting down at echo lake and it makes sense for the environment and you do you definitely i'm um, thinking about it uh the fact you're tasked to come up with a sense of adventure you definitely get that there and it ties well to the indiana jones epic stunt spectacular which is right there and it all just as one cohesive story told visually and through audio. Um, so yeah, I think, I think no matter the method used, um, it's, it definitely, uh, makes, it just makes sense when you're in the parks, which is great. I, so like I said, we could, we could talk about each one of these projects at length. Um, and I'd be happy to even like, I feel like I'd want to just keep chatting more about every one of these. But um, for the sake of time, I guess jumping beyond the parks a little bit, I know a lot of your career was spent at Blizzard Entertainments working on some iconic, uh, you know, video games that were developed. And those included things like World of Warcraft, um, Diablo 3, uh, Overwatch, Hearthstone, just a lot of really impressive franchises. How did you make the jump from theme park music to uh, to video games? And I know also in there you have a little bit of work on animated television shows. Um, I know your, your work kind of spans a lot. So I guess a way to rephrase the question is where did you make the jump from Walt Disney Imagineering and how did you ultimately end up at Blizzard Entertainment? Well, getting laid off can be uh, either a really big impediment or a wonderful push <laughs> from behind. Absolutely. And uh, so, yeah, the, luckily at the end of, um, of the, uh, my first 
time at, at WED, they had a wonderful like outplacement thing and they, they introduced me to Ken Forsey, who I know you're aware of because I listened to, uh, well, Jim obviously because yeah. Billy, Billy Toomey and I listened to the Jim Sarno interview, which was right. wonderful. And, uh, and, and Ken was well, well in, into having his own company at that point in time and creating Teddy Ruxpin. So I, uh, through the WED outplacement program, I found my way over there and working on Teddy Ruxpin. And then I, then it's just a melange of years of bouncing between that and television and uh, back to Disney and back to employment at Imagineering for quite a few years. But then uh, when I got laid off again, I <laughs> realized at that time, uh, an interesting thing had happened in entertainment. Uh, reality television had happened. The Survivor program had happened. And uh, that genre kind of took the wind out of the sails of the genres that I used to work in, at least for a while. Um, Cause I used to work on doing post-production for a lot of movies of the week and things like that. A lot of drama and, and a lot of animation and things. And once the industry got a taste of the um, uh, reality television uh, business model, they couldn't get enough of it for a while there. So Television was kind of a wasteland for me when I was out of Imagineering. So I looked into a field that I had always loved, and that's video games. I'd always been a player of games, and I had done uh, the occasional freelance job here and there of sound design and music and this and that. So over the years, so I decided, well, why not? So I jumped into it with both feet, and after a couple of different uh, places, I wound up at blizzard and i think what's important there maybe to just sort of bring this around and sum it all up would be right. world of warcraft i looked at it as a theme park in a box it was the theme park that i could take with me wherever i went with a computer and a pair of headphones i could be in that theme park and so i just brought that thinking to it and it ended up being um absolutely the perfect project for that mindset so while I did not uh, create World of Warcraft from the beginning, uh, I joined it about six months on. And since that time, I, um, I'm i sure the percentage has lowered since since then. But at the time I had left Blizzard, I had written about half the music in World of Warcraft. And uh, it, it a lot of it was done with the sensibility and the lessons learned from working on the Disney parks, uh, how to support the... Uh, the 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 mindset that you would be in at any given moment in any given era area and um trying to avoid contradictions and to provide reassurance that's that word that comes up when they're talking about architecture sometimes with disney and there's also i think the soundtracks of reassurance and and i felt that was what i was doing and that's what my my gig was and uh yeah so I'm looking for the next place to apply my craft and do that. Yeah. Um, 
Well, it's interesting that you would think about it and it makes sense to sort of thinking about it from the lens of the theme park. And now that I'm thinking about even the scores, some of those games, it almost could be, uh, you know, heard if the same themes existed in a theme park space. And uh, that's a, a very great way to, to approach that project. Um, did you, I think you also had the, was that your first opportunity to, to lead a team or did you lead a team at Disney as well? I, I, I got to lead teams uh, everywhere I worked at one time or another. Um, the people have asked me, why do I tend to lead teams rather than be just on one? And, and it's not something I set out to do consciously but i think in retrospect and looking at it i I believe that what i've kind of had done is uh i found that sound and music is something that few people uh working in hollywood or working in theme parks for that matter study uh they're mostly people are studying visuals special effects cinematography uh basically everything but music on the other hand everyone knows knows music and and knows what they like because we all curate music in our own lives so when you're then therefore when you're a music uh burgeoning music professional and you 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 want to work on stuff you you will find that people aren't used to someone coming someone coming through and thinking critically about what kind of music could go there and um hence i think the argument i had about whether or not future world is a thoroughfare or a, for occasionally for a place where you might sit and cool your heels for an hour and listen to listen to or at least if i mean not listen to the music but it will wash over you and have an effect on you whether you plan on it or not absolutely uh, and video games especially world of warcraft has a huge dynamic range between the busiest moments in the game and the quietest moments in the game. You know, there are moments of pure exploration, long moments of pure exploration. If you choose to play that way, where it'd just be like roaming the back streets of New Orleans square at Disneyland. You're, you're, you're on your own time schedule and you can go where pretty much wherever you want to go. And uh, so the sound professionals have to figure out, how to accommodate whatever the audience might do. So that's an important thing. But you can get a lot of um, pushback, unfortunately, especially in the film world and things like that. So it's a, it's a, there's something about your original question that made me think of that, and I'm spacing on why I went no, it's, there. No, it's great information, though. But it is true that um, as, as someone who wants to be very thoughtful about how to put a soundtrack together or something like that, um, there is an amazing amount of pushback from uh, the creatives in, in other uh, genre or aspects of the same of a given project. Because like I said, you, people learn how to be cinematographers, but they don't necessarily learn how to deal with composers so uh, or how to deal with music in general. So it ends up being a thing where you know, sometimes I have to gently say, no, I really can't put the Jaws theme there because see above, lawyers, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so strange stuff like that happens where um, 
I mean, there was a, I remember a moment on a video game, I won't say which one, where a, a director or not a director, I think it was a game designer had just, because everyone had access to all the same tools, they had just popped in the soundtrack from Good and Bad of the Ugly into, into the game we were working on because it had a little Western moment and they, they just, and yeah, it worked perfectly. And it also would have gotten us perfectly sued. And also, uh, <laughs> the project deserved some original thinking because everything else was original. The artwork was original. The character was original. So other than, yes, we want to bring back some memories of what, quote unquote, spaghetti Western means to, to us. Uh, this, you, you want to do something thoughtful and appropriate for it. So that's, I guess I climbed halfway up on a soapbox there. No, but apologies for that all. No, no, no. It's actually really useful. No, no, it's <laughs> <laughs> no, it's really interesting. I love that aspect of it, and uh, I think that um, it's definitely a something that you write. A lot of those who even tell me that they you know or ask for advice in terms of how to get into company like Walt Disney Imagineering or any other company too will always think about the or even you know movies will think about the visual side of it the cinematography the directing yeah. the um, you know model building for Disney but often not think about the music side of it it's something that I was always I guess conscious of and even when I'll go see a movie half the time I'll say I want to go see the movie again if it was a good movie but more than half the time I'll say I want to go home and listen to the score to this movie um and i think you're right a lot of cases when there's great work it deserves great original sounds and music to go along with it um i have a few questions left one is regarding differences between your approach to something like a show a tv show compared to a video game or a park and the reason i bring that up is because i know with something like um you know like batman the animated series there's a storyline that's happening in a very specific order specific timing where with a video game or a theme park it's more of the atmosphere and there is mm -hmm. some timing involved to it but it's more of a, a landscape type of feel to it compared to a, you know, a plotted out storyline. Um, how do you approach those types of projects differently or do you approach it the same way? There's a lot of overlap. Uh, in both types of projects, I really uh, value what I would call a spotting session. And that would be where the composer would sit down with whoever the creative stakeholders are, often a director and maybe a producer like that sort of, uh, those sort of job titles would be in the room. And uh, for all types of, of, these, uh, of these mediums that one can work in, that's really useful because that's where you get the, the brain dump from the creatives who uh, are telling the story. They've, and many may have written the story. They, 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 they know what, they know what they want you to take away from it for all the overload of information coming from, you know, that screen or this ride or this game. What do we want people to take home? Cause we don't want to hit them with a fire hose. We want to hit them with, with what, uh, well, what we want them to, to really perceive and, and to, to think about. Cause 
imagine when you're walking just through life, all sounds are happening around you. It's like the cocktail party effect you always hear about where no matter how many conversations are going, we are, we do have the ability with our human hearing to walk through a room and kind of mask out the conversations we don't want to hear and zero in on the one that we do. It's an amazing thing, but it does not work in a video game and it does not work in a uh, movie theater or off of a television screen works in theme parks and it works, it works in real life basically. And it has to do with the way we hear and, and the fact that uh, in anything other than real life, the sound is being reproduced by speakers and it's just all wrong. Our brain doesn't know what to do with it. So since our brain cannot sort out the cocktail party effect, as easily listening to a video game or, 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 um, or, or a movie, um, we, the, the onus is then on the designer, the composer, the uh, audio director, whomever it is, and the, and the people, the, the, all the stakeholders, to kind of lead the ear through that experience and, and, and decide what's important and should be put in the foreground and what should recede to the background. And it's all very well carefully thought through um frankly not that much differently than it would have just been writing a a great song i mean there's definitely a a through line to that song that takes you from one level at the beginning to another level that might want you to be emotionally at the end and can draw that same kind of curve uh, for any experience so that spotting session we get that information and then we can work with that you mentioned bat baton man it was it was such an amazing experience because for me on that show i was doing the sound design and the late great shirley walker and her uh contingent of composers were writing the scores and on her insistence we spotted every frame of every episode together both her and i in the room and the director and producer so we were getting the same information at the same time and anywhere there might be like a moment that where the two of us might be stepping on each other's toes sonically we would sort it out in the room that day uh before any notes had been written and before any sound effects had been you know sought out and pulled we decided you know like if it was an emotional moment the sound would back away and would let the music handle it it sounds real obvious now but you'd be surprised how most spotting sessions for music and sound effects are done on completely different continents and different months and never talk to each other. Um, she insisted that we do this together. And when there was a big explosion or something, she'd build up to it with music. But then when the actual sound event happened, she just would rest and the mixes would go together perfectly. Nothing was stepping on each other uh, on other things. There was no fighting for everything. That's in contrast to how things are often made these days where, again, everyone operates in a vacuum and covers every moment of every, of every beat ever possible in, in a given program. And then they all arrive at the mix together and people have to sort out, okay, here's the big explosion. I've got 10 tracks of horns and 15 tracks of explosions. What do I play? You know? And so, it's just that's important to me to make this sound thing go well and go smoothly and go with the way it was designed. 
And, but after that, it kind of changes when you, uh, video games and theme parks have the most in common, whereas movies and television are kind of in their own thing. And that's, as you put it, they're very linear, the, the latter, the film and TV. And so, uh, that's, that script never changes. Whereas in the games and, and the theme parks, we have a free roaming audience that can go almost anywhere it wants. And um, there are times when we may, you know, funnel them down a particular shoot and, and follow a certain course. And maybe, but maybe there's, maybe there's a tripwire at the end of that, that corridor that causes, you know, the ghost host to speak at that moment. But <laughs> Uh, you know, you have to figure that stuff out and, and uh, there's nothing, then there's no substitute for going to the parks um, or playing the games and letting that wash over you and seeing what worked and what, what didn't. Cause uh, when trying to anticipate human interaction, you're going to always fall short. So, so yeah, I, they start out the same in that storytelling is storytelling, but then, in looking at how to make a, a world believable and compelling and, and maybe in some cases to help push the audience along a little bit or, or maybe to warn them to stand back or something like that, that stuff all just has to be meticulously planned and revisited and play tested. And there, there's definitely a, a point in all these things where there's some, uh, there's a loop of, of uh, trying things and, then going back and trying again. Yeah, it makes complete sense. Absolutely. Um, that they would all sort of start the same way in thinking about the story, but then the, you know, the execution would be a, a little bit different depending on the, the medium um, that's involved. So I know that you also have some incredible achievements that you've earned over the years. You, you know, you're a three-time Emmy award winner. Um, you were on the, uh, I think in 2014, on the classic FM Hall of Fame Top 300 for Invincible, which was from your World of Warcraft, uh, Wrath of the Lich King score. And obviously, even thinking about, thinking back on your career journey from being even self-taught and following your passion and just learning as much as you can, what are you most proud of looking back on your career, whether that be the awards themselves or more of a holistic type of achievement? Definitely not the awards. Um, they really helped make my, my mom proud of me and I, I love that. <laughs> and that's good. Um, yeah. But I, I, yeah, that's, that's just a, a whole nother aspect of the life I, that I don't care about that much. I, I, it's interesting you, you use the word holistic because I do think that in my life, I have never been able to separate my career from the rest of my life very well and, and much to my detriment. Uh, important safety tip to people out there, have a nice wide get gulf between <laughs> those two parts of your life. But whatever, anyway, that's who I am. I've got, things are all kind of mixed together and that just means that I think I'm just always, uh, when I, when I consume media and things like that, I, I either I'm transported or I'm not. And if I'm transported away, then I don't care how they did what they did, or 
I just, I just enjoy it. I, 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 some people in my field say they don't enjoy movies anymore. I love movies. I, I can completely give it up and not pick apart how the movie was made if it takes me away. But if it doesn't, that usually means there's something that I would consider was a missed opportunity along the way. Maybe a, it might be that <laughs> that piece of maybe it was that piece of needle drop music in in the park that I happened to hear on a commercial for you know uh, tires that morning on the radio, and then I went to a theme park and I heard it in a place that's supposed to take me somewhere else. That's the kind of thing that that jars me. And so, suppose I go through my whole life just trying to tend this big garden of sound around me, and and and. Uh, explore what I'm compelled to explore. And, and uh, uh, my next project, by the way, is worth mentioning because when I think about things I love to explore and what I find compelling to work on, I, I mentioned earlier the, the Myst games, MYST from the early 90s, the original like CD-ROM yes. games and stuff, point and click yeah. adventures. Those meant a lot to me in part because they used real sound as opposed to um, chip tunes. They were used some, you know, sampled sounds, and they were. It was a beautiful environment. So to me, that's when video games got interesting and got compelling to me. And I've always admired the the work of that company, Cyan Worlds. And uh, so I'm really happy that my next project is uh, I'm scoring their next big game. It's called Firmament, and it is in that style. Um, they've created a world with a, you know, there's some friction, there's, there's game, there's something, there's a, there's a quest to go on and, and with hundreds of sub things to solve. And there's a, basically what I'm saying, there's a story to experience and to, and to be a part of, and you can do it at your, your own speed and you're roaming through a completely three-dimensional world that is I wouldn't say you'd mistake it for the real world, but it is very believable and you want it to be real. And that's, that's, uh, that's like the, the pigs in the slop and the pirates of the Caribbean. Those are the happiest animals in that ride, you know, singing. Very true. <laughs> <laughs> so I, that's, that's me working on this thing. Cause it's like a, um, you know, it's the theme park in a box and, and it has the story. It has, uh, uh, some dialogue, but but not. It's not a leaning on dialogue. It's very much like you're roaming through this other world, and uh, I just love it because it brings together everything I've learned and everything I've wanted to do. So when you say, you know, how do I approach like everything, or, or what what do I consider rewarding? I think what I consider rewarding is that there's this world that. Uh, is begging to be populated with mood and joy and sorrow and experiences. And, and I get to do that. And I'm really am grateful. And I, I, and I just hope there's more things like that to work on as well, or like these wonderful theme parks we all love. Um, it's a very special type of entertainment. It's very personal to everyone. And I'm very proud and of, 
the things I've done, and I'm even more proud of the people I've met, the friends I've made, and the, the type, the things I've learned from my colleagues over the years. You know, when I say I'm self-taught, I really should rephrase that. I'm, I've been standing on the shoulders of giants. It's just been not in a classroom situation. You know, it's like George right. Wilkins, George Wilkins uh, handing me these amazing, simple notes that make up the motif of the living seas theme and gives me a first glimpse of how I might explode that idea out into an hour of, of further orchestration and other melodies that I get to write and other ideas. He sent me on this mission and it was just the best journey at the time ever that I'd been on. And so I just live for this kind of stuff. And I'm really grateful to people like him, uh, to Tony Baxter, who, you know, never got to work with, but, but became a friend and a mentor at that, that highest level of like what, you know, just, just talking about what theme parks mean to us, you know, what this type of entertainment means to us. It's just, you can't learn that stuff in school. School is great, but I think everyone should, I, I, I would hope everyone would have the opportunity in their work to uh, have the kind of experiences that like Jim Sarno was talking about um, just really uh, I mean you, you mentioned Claude Coates you know in, in reference to Tony Baxter I meant to say when I first worked for WED that first summer all these people as Jim Sarno had said all these people had returned people that Walt had hired and who had subsequently retired well they came back to because they loved Walt so much to help him re to help realize this version of his last greatest dream. And I had grown up reading about these people and studying them. So I knew who they all were. It was not lost on me. So when I was there and, you know, there was Claude Coates, there was, um, uh, uh, sorry, my brain is failing me right now, but you know, Ward Kimball, uh, just Herb Ryman, <laughs> you name it, all the uh, Mark Davis, Exitensio, uh, all these people were so nice to me. And I was just this little 18 year old kid who, after I'd get off work, because my shift when I first started was 7 to 3 30. So I'd have like a couple of hours at least after I got off work that I could just probably bother the crap out of <laughs> my fellow Imagineers. But I, I sat in Claude Coates' office for hours and just listened to him tell stories. And, uh, I did that with so many of these people and that that's what I, that's the, the part, those are the parts of the whole for me that make up what I'm proud of and what I enjoy trying to uh, infuse into my work going forward. So I, I am officially saying thank you to all those people. <laughs> live live on tape for everyone to hear hopefully for eternity <laughs> i certainly hope so um well that's really fantastic i i love that they you're right jim to talk about them coming back and it's amazing you get to hear their stories uh in person and um it's obviously something a, a lot of those folks i unfortunately am unable to to communicate with but in some cases are reaching out to family members to get their stories um, which is also why I'm trying to, to reach out to as many people as possible who are um, still around, who can share their stories firsthand. 
my last big question for you, and then sort of a tag to that is uh, I want to give folks an opportunity to follow you on social media and give you the chance to plug what you have going on in addition to firmament coming up. But um, last big question is in regards to advice, you obviously offered some pieces of advice in terms of sort of separating your, um, you know, your day-to-day life from your work. Although I think if you're passionate and it falls in harmony that it, it sort of does blend and, in your case and in a lot of other cases. I, I don't know that it's possible to separate yeah. them really if you're really into doing this stuff for real. But exactly. Yeah. Anyway, go on. <laughs> no, yeah. So my, my question is any other advice you have to offer for someone who is, uh, you know, either still in high school or perhaps in college or el- even in a, a career already and wants to jump careers who might want to pursue music composition um, or sound design or anything in terms of audio uh, as a professional career with video games, movies, theme parks, anything in that line of work? Well, this would be the tough love part. And that's where um, if we had more time, I would probably spend about 10 minutes trying to talk anyone out of it. uh, (laughs) Saying run, screaming, do not hear there be dragons. But, but yeah, (laughs) But after that, then I would say, but the good part is this. And then that's the talk we've just had. This is all, this is all the good part. I think my advice would be um, to just be aware of what you're getting into. Because where art and commerce converge is an intersection that is um, very compelling. It's exciting. It's it has everything to do with what we love and what makes what we love possible and all like that. But also for a creative person who is also probably depending on, you know, where, where they come from, how they're wired and, you know, what kind of just what their personal story is often creative people are pretty sensitive. You know, our emotions are close to the surface, things like that. Um, That intersection of commerce and, and art can be a very dangerous place, a very volatile place to be. And so it's not for everyone. And it, or it won't always be for, for everyone all the time. And, and so I tell people, especially students, I go, be sure this is what you want to do. And they'll usually nod and go, yeah, that's why we're here. Well, yeah, but then if it's students, I'll ask, okay, how, how many of you, uh, how many of you have a plan B, uh, you know, and it's typical in school, maybe, you know, made a deal with the parents in order to major in music. One had to minor in business or something like that. And invariably hands shoot up because that's what happens. And I, and I, and that's the point where I tell them, if you have a plan B, you should do that because as long as there are, there is a plan B waiting in the wings, it's, it's a human nature. That's, that's where you will end up most likely to, to make it, you kind of have to like, you know, make it to the new world, burn your ships behind you and stay with it. And just, it's a 24 seven full body contact sport. I'm not saying it will screw up all your relationships, but it will affect all your relationships. And that's important to just know, just know that going in, you know, and if you have the the right support system in your life you have the right you know whether that's a person or a 
pet or your family or what, whatever it is. And if, and if they're, if they are supportive and if they get it and they support you no matter what, then please, you know, when you go home tonight, show them how much you love them and appreciate them because they are worth their weight in gold. Cause most people don't get it. They, they don't understand the level of dedication, the sheer hours. They don't always understand that when you say you need some time to work on this music project, you don't mean an hour in between two other errands. No, you mean like two days without being bothered or something like that. Maybe not that bad, but you know, you know what I mean? It's, it's, there's a, a level of focus and tenacity that is essential. And if that flags, it's not going to work. Um, and I, all I can say is I know it from experience because I've had times when that energy has been flagging. I've had times where I, I, I just couldn't make that my focus. And, and I suffered during that time, uh, create or, or uh, career wise. It's a really, um, fickle and, and selfish taskmaster. <laughs> but if you're okay with that, at that point in the talk, I've still got, frankly, because usually these classes are, are pretty, when I speak to students, this is like the SC film scoring people and stuff like that. They're, they're in it to, 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 they're in it to win it. So at that point, they realize, no, I'm not trying to talk them out of it. I'm just trying to tell them how important it is that they have their eyes open take care of of those you love don't neglect them no matter how easy it might inadvertently become as you get completely immersed in and because every waking moment will be spent trying to get your career off the ground and then even after it's off the ground you'll be you'll be working to get the next gig and the gig after that so um, people some people eat this for lunch and love it and and it's it but it's not for everyone so there you go. That's the tough love answer. And that's really the only one I know how to give. <laughs> it's important to give that tough love answer though. Um, I've, I've heard that the tough love approach quite a few times on the show. And uh, I think it's, um, it's in good, it's important to be inspired and motivated. And then it's also important to know what's ahead of you and that it's not going to be a smooth sailing. It definitely has its bumps um, in the road and uh, it's not an easy path to take to, to be in that field. So I always appreciate the tough love approach. Um, so that's my last big question. The only other question I have is for those who are interested in following along on, you mentioned social media. Um, we started before the show. Uh, so where can people go to follow you online or on social media? My, I, my, my social media is uh, a little lacking. I get, yell that for it all the time however i <laughs> i, I am thing. on facebook under my own name and on twitter under my own name but with uh uh just being sure while i talk but that with an underscore between russell and brower uh on twitter and uh and th those are the main places i actually don't even have a website right now but i will eventually and i'll I'll certainly let you know when I get on to my next thing. Like uh, I, I do want to do a, a personal solo album project. And once I have uh, concrete information of, you know, when, where, how I, I will absolutely let everyone know because uh, I'm trying to bring 
all my life's musical influences together into a series of musical projects of self-expression. Uh, I say a series of them because I don't want to try and tell 50 stories in one album. I want to, I think Walt said, tell one story. So I want to get that first one done because all the music I've done heretofore in my life has been for Disney or Warner Brothers or Blizzard. Or <laughs> so um, yeah, I'm ready to kind of finally say in a in a uh, medium outside of the theme parks kind of what all this means to me and put in a little uh, audio love letter and uh and hopefully uh people who enjoy the parks and the games will get a kick out of that project as well well i will to make things this is always very easy i'll put all the links into the podcast description and the nice thing about a digital outlet like a podcast that can be streamed is if if and when you do have a, a website up and running i can easily add that into the show and uh so if you're if you're listening back now and the website's there russell went ahead and made a website and i added it back here <laughs> um so very generous of you much appreciated and <laughs> uh, and 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 thanks to to all your uh, all your listeners who uh have stuck stuck here this far and and uh hope you'll check out some of this uh, music next time you're playing one of these games or visiting one of the visiting one of the parks. If I know my listeners, a lot of them already do. So <laughs> that's, that's not a problem, but I, I really appreciate your time, Russell. Thank you so much for, uh, for coming on to the show. Well, thank you for having me and my love to all out there. Everyone, please stay safe and, and uh, can't wait to see you all on the other side. We close out episode 80 of the Imagineer podcast. I want to give a very special thank you to Russell once again. I know you're listening out there, and it was sincerely an honor to have you on this podcast as someone, as I mentioned in the beginning and throughout the episode, who has been admiring this music for as long as I've been going to Disney. It's literally one of the pieces of the puzzle that contributes to why I love Disney so much. It was so wonderful to have the chance to chat with you and to hear your stories and i thank you so much for lending your time to this podcast episode for those of you listening to the show i of course want to turn the conversation over to you and hear of all of russell brower's work which is extensive which is your favorite and specifically what's your favorite disney area music loop that Russell has created. As always, you can send me your feedback in so many different ways, and I encourage you to connect with me on social media. You can connect with Imagineer Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and LinkedIn 
at Imagineer Podcast or on Twitter at Imagineer News. And you can also join our Facebook group, The Imagination, also called the Imagineer Podcast Disney Fan Community, which you can type into your Facebook search bar or more easily just go to our Imagineer Podcast Facebook page and click on the groups tab and that will take you right over to The Imagination. You can also send me feedback or your answers by sending me an email at imagineerpodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to Imagineer Podcast, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Whether you're listening in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Podcasts, or any other podcast app, and if you have five seconds, definitely leave us a rating in the iTunes store. If you have 60 seconds, is about the same amount of time it would take to watch an Instagram video or a TikTok video, I would sincerely appreciate a review as well, which does a lot to help this community grow and reach more people in the Apple Podcast Store. Thanks to the 350 plus of you who have left us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts and on Facebook. I see them all. I read them all. I often share them to my Instagram and Facebook stories, and I more importantly sincerely appreciate it because I know that your word is something that is incredibly valuable and it just means so much to me to see all those kind messages and always pushes me to work even harder for all of you. If you would like to take your love of Imagineer podcast to the next level, definitely look into the Imagineer Society. We have some really cool new perks that I've added. Every time we move forward, every time I think of something new, I always try to add and infuse extra value into Imagineer Society, but you can learn more about that by going to patreon.com slash Imagineer Podcast, more valuable than ever, even starting at just $1 a month, which is $12 a year. You get some fun perks, rewards, benefits in return, and go to help to support the show and keep the lights on for Imagineer Podcast. Of course, the more you contribute to the show, the more I appreciate it, and the more you get in return. Things like early access to podcast episodes, bonus podcast episodes just for the Imagineer Society, access to a private Instagram and Facebook group, uh, closed Q&As that are only accessible to, and these are live Q&As that are only accessible to the Imagineer Society, and so much more. I also added recently, actually, binaural audio recordings. Of course, you know I do record binaural audio when I go to the parks. And if you join our hero category at this point, and this might change in the future depending on when you're listening, but you can now stream uh, 50 binaural audio recordings on demand whenever you would like, as long as you remember. And that is uh, at least the number at this point. And includes some binaural recordings that you won't even find so far on Imagine Your Podcast that I haven't attractions I haven't covered yet, but will in the future. Again, you can learn more all about that at patreon.com slash podcast and see what benefits are currently available, again, depending on when you're listening to this episode. Of course, the best thing you can do for the show is very, very simple. Just share it. Share out the show with anyone you know who loves all things Disney and who might enjoy listening to this podcast. You can share them with them directly or share out your favorite episode in an Instagram or Facebook post or Twitter post or or say a tweet or your Instagram or Facebook stories or whatever you prefer. Every share does very so much to so very much to help to support Imagine your podcast, and I do see and sincerely appreciate every share out there. And be sure to look into our partners as well. First, take a look at The Kingdom Insider over at thekingdominsider.com because Christy has so much 
knowledge and information and tips to share with all of you. I trust Christy to not only do all of this with the utmost professionalism, but to share relevance and more important, accurate news with all of you. She does not dive into the rumor mill. She will only share what has officially been announced by Disney. It's something as a Disney fan, I sincerely appreciate. She's not looking for clickbait. She's truly just looking to share some wonderful knowledge and amazing tips with all of you. First, as someone who is luckier than me to live a lot closer to the magic and gets to visit Walt Disney World and other Disney destinations very frequently. So check her out at thekingdominsider.com or at the Kingdom Insider on any social media channel. And when you're ready to book your next trip to Walt Disney World, Disneyland, Disney Cruise Line, Aulani, Adventures by Disney, or any other Disney destination around the world, look into Mickey Vacations by Academy Travel. Um, you can just check out Academy Travel on social media, or the easiest thing to do is if you look into the podcast description, you'll find some links to a free request, a quote request form where they can fill out some information, they can send you a free quote back and share how they can help you to plan your next Disney vacation and actually save you money on a future Disney trip. The other way you can find these forms is by going to imagineerpodcast.com. If you click on the travel drop-down menu, it'll link you to particular quote forms for different destinations around the world. Again, that's at no extra charge to you. They can help you to save some money on your future Disney vacation and do it with a little extra Disney magic and some incredible customer service. They are diamond earmarked. It's the highest level of distinction that Disney awards to travel agencies. Last but not least, as always, I want to encourage you to go after whatever dreams you might have. I think Russell had some wonderful advice to offer to aspiring musicians or anyone who wants to go into writing music or into the arts in general. But whatever that goal is that you have in mind, if you're passionate about it, go after it. Take that first step today. What is that first step? Take it today to go after your hopes and dreams. If you're past your first step, work on that second step and beyond. Remember, as always, that inspiring quote from Horizons. If you can dream it, you can do it. Thank you so much for listening to the show, and we'll see you again in a future episode of the Imagineer Podcast. Welcome you to Seabase Alpha.